revelation of something. What it is revealing fundamentally is a new way of life, a new sort of allegiance, a new way to be human. It's why later in the book of Acts, Jesus' followers go on to be called the people of the way. The first name for the Christian movement was not self-titled, but was called and described by others as people who participated in the way, which beckons the question, what way? Like, what are they participating? What is the way in which they're doing things and the way in which they're participating? What is unique about it? And of course, the answer to that question, while quite simple then, has grown in in modern terms nowadays to be quite complex because billions of people across the world call themselves Christians, while many of them actually have no life that looks anything like the way or like the life of Christ. But the fundamental mark of a person who is what we call a Christian, what was originally called the way, was a person who followed in the way of Jesus. This is what discipleship to a Jesus is about, or sometimes we talk about it like it's apprenticeship, because that's more of a modern term for you and I. If someone follows my friend Lawrence around to become a plumber, the goal is not that like he can uh, continue to follow, he or she could continue to follow Lawrence around for the rest of their lives and help Lawrence plumb things, but that eventually they would be able to go out on their own and be a plumber on their own. And that same sort of apprenticeship is what, what we're talking about when we're talking about following Jesus. Talking about following the way, the life, the lifestyle, the worldview, all of these encompassing words to describe one singular reality. That as as followers of Christ, we must walk in the way that Jesus walked. Quite simply, the way is where part of this church's name comes from. Us naming this church River and Way is not because outsiders had described us as people following the way, but it was a name of who we hoped to become. People infatuated, given our lives over to, dedicated to become people who walk in the way of Jesus. And the reality is that, that, like I said earlier, lots of people call themselves Christians but what's beautiful about the book of Acts when, when the apostles and, and the, those following Christ are called the way is it's people on the outside describing that reality about them. It's not them naming river and way, river and way because that's a hope, but it's them being called the way because that's the way they're already living. And so the question begets itself is like, what would those far from God or who don't know God but know you, would they say you participate in the way? the way of Jesus, that our life is oriented, built around on the foundation of Christ himself. And that's what's so beautiful about outsiders, or if you're a comedy fan, it's what's so beautiful about comedians. They're a bit like modern day prophets where they observe reality, not perception, not words, they observe reality and then they name the thing what it actually is. That's what makes Jim Gaffigan so funny. But this new sort of way that the book of Acts is describing is not a way of belief, a way of thinking, but it's a a new reality that is manifesting itself in the lives, not the like theoretical lives, but the actual lives of these people, the apostles and this layman, to be specific. 
And today's scripture is manifesting itself the way, the Holy Spirit-infused way of following God, Holy Spirit-empowered way of following God. Today's scripture gives us a picture of a manifestation of healing from the book of Acts, kind of. It is true that this is the first healing story after Jesus' resurrection, after the day of Pentecost, and we want to notice what is happening in the story. In verse 1 again, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon, verse 2, and now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. We see that Peter and John continue to go to the temple courts as a new following of the way. Um, But the temple court is the sacred Jewish place, a Jewish gathering. But what we see in Acts 4 and 5 is it reveals that Peter and John's, like the emphasis of why they're going isn't just to participate in Jewish ritual. that, That may be a part of it. There's some scholarly debate about that. But what we know for sure is that they are going and teaching and preaching about Jesus and his resurrection. They're going to talk about all the things God has done and is doing. And hopefully, if they're understanding the scriptures correctly, one day will do in full. And on their way there, Peter and John encounter a man. And not just any man, but a man who is well acquainted with suffering. And also a man that John and Peter themselves might have seen before, have been well acquainted with before. But this man's life is a picture of of like what we would describe as as suffering. This section of scripture, 3 verse 1 through 10, is actually describes this man. It tells us that he has been lame from birth. Tells us that he is carried to the gate. It tells us that he is put there, implying complete dependence on others. That he begs for money to survive. And that he is unable to walk and he's not allowed inside the temple gates. In the Old Testament, there are certain biblical requirements for priests. And priests can't have any like disease or mar or blemish or anything like that. There can't be anything abnormal about their lives or they're disqualified from priesthood. In the same sort of way, animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, like the lamb, if you remember, can't have spot or blemish. Like it has to be the the perfect, beautiful lamb. And in Jewish culture at this time, they carried that principle out into the congregation or out into the people, God's people that came to participate in the temple. So it is likely that this man was not even allowed inside the temple gates if he wanted to be carried there. He's left marginalized outside away from others because of his disability. So this man has been lame or unable to walk from birth and he's outside the temple called, he's outside the temple, he's at the gate called Beautiful, which I think is really funny. And I think we should start naming random things like beautiful or spectacular again. I think it'd be really like that chair is like the spectacular chair. So like, let's start a trend. I don't know how to start trends, that sort of thing, whatever. And Peter and John, back to the story, are approaching and the man asks them for money. Peter and John look straight at the man who is not looking at them. Imagine just for a second, like head bowed in shame. Not enough dignity in himself or his own life to hold his head up high probably does not account himself equal enough with others to look them in the face, let alone the eye. 
And possibly because he has been lame since birth, he has likely like tried to look people in the eye, but when they did, just like many of our neighbors who are homeless today, when they met eyes, the other party would quickly look away for the sad feeling they get by seeing this person's reality. Because when we look people in the eyes, it's not just that I'm seeing you, there's almost like a relational intimacy, human story sharedness that happens. And so what I would say is that like looking people in the eye for him was too relational, too vulnerable, too intimate. So by not looking people in the eye, he gives up any hope of relationship, but it may increase the likelihood that he could get a few coins of pity as long as he didn't make those uncomfortable around him. And Peter and John, in this point in the story, they demand that this lame man look at them. And he does, and he does so expecting to receive something. In verse 6, Peter says, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter here is no fool. Peter knows what this man wants. This man wants money. He wants enough to get by until tomorrow until he can be brought here again, outside the temple gates again and beg again. He depends on people to give him money to be able to survive and people, and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, knowing that silver and gold are the one thing that Peter really, or the one thing this lame man really wants. But what Peter does has to offer is the words of life, the revelation of Jesus. You see, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inside of Peter is what Peter can offer or can share with this man. What I think is most beautiful about this Acts 3 passage is that we both are invited to learn from Peter and invited to learn from the lame man. We get to experience like we have experienced and taste of what it's like to be both of these people. We are invited to learn from Peter in the sense that we all recognize that we cannot meet every physical need of every person we encounter. That is just a reality. Jesus describes it this way. The poor will always be with you. But we are invited to share with them what we do have. And what we have is much deeper than money in our pocket. At the very least, we have the ability to make someone else feel seen to ask them their name, to take time to hear a bit of their story, or maybe just a little bit closer to home, like the people around you, beyond seeing them and knowing them, you live with them, like begin to say the things you think kindly about them out loud, and if you don't think kindly of them, maybe you should reconsider that with Jesus. Like begin to become people of affirmation and encouragement that like spread hope through the power of the tongue to the people around us. But when it comes to other people, when it comes to seeing other people, we must regain vision again. That meeting like meeting needs, physical needs, that matters. It's it's like it does, it matters, but meeting relational needs matters. And meeting spiritual needs matters. With Jesus and the paralytic right again, returning things back to the garden. 
So Peter tells a man who has been sitting outside these gates day after day, as much as we know, maybe most or all of his life, who's been lame since birth, Peter tells him to walk. And what Peter is inviting this man to do is not primarily to be healed, but what Peter is inviting this man to do is primarily to have faith. Faith in Peter, faith in Peter's words, and ultimately faith in Jesus and the restoring, the restoring power that the work of the cross has done with the inbreaking kingdom of God. Peter is giving him an invitation to faith. And there's much to be said and argued about. I remember in my younger high school days that we would spend time arguing over this very story. Was it Peter's faith that healed the man or was it the lame beggar's faith? Like which faith healed him? And I think that's the wrong question. I think it's the wrong question. I think the right question is primarily a question about a faith invitation from Peter and a faith response from the lame man more than it is about healing. It's more about faith than it is about healing. This story is more about faith than it is about healing. Because I think that like in some reality, we all know like whatever your immediate physical need is, of which we have many, and there are many in this room, we also know that whatever that need is, it is also not our deepest need. There is something deeper than that that we really need. In this story, walking is a very real need. But in some sense, like he has survived this long and will likely continue to survive whether he walks or not. And with us as people who can walk, we project onto this story that like if this man were ever going to have a life of meaning or a life of happiness, he would have to be able to walk. And I would simply suggest to you, are you happy today because you can walk? Has that solved all of your needs? or all of your problems, like we project that it would for this man. And what I mean to get after in saying this is that often the thing we want on the surface is not the thing that our soul really needs. The physical need is not often our deepest need, and I think on some level we resonate with that is true. That if I could just do this, or if I could just have that, if I could have more vacation, or a little bit more money, or be skinnier, or younger, or read more, or hire the next person, or be healed, or prayed over, or prophesied, or discipled, or be in community, or be married, or have a better marriage, or have another kid, or whatever the thing is, the list goes on and on and on, that then we would finally have happiness. And I think deep down, if we take a moment to reflect on any of those things, we would know that after a month, maybe two, those things would no longer satisfy the depth of our soul anymore either. And I think it's because a deep relationship with God and others is the only thing that can really satisfy your soul. Relational intimacy with God is the only thing that can truly, like fundamentally at the core of who we are, satisfy our soul. And I don't have to spend much more time talking about this because I think that like you all get that. You know, like we need to be reminded, myself included, often of that reality, but the like, the thing we really need 
Like the intimacy that we really crave, the desires we really have can only be found in one place. That's in relationship with the living God. Or as Pastor Tim Keller says, it takes way more than what you think it would to fill your soul. It takes way more than what you think it would to fill your soul. And I think it's important to say that while when it comes to intimacy with Jesus, when it comes to walking with God over a lifetime, there is no silver bullet. There is no life hack. There is no quick way to build deep, meaningful relationships. This slow, regular order. I love my friend Michael Mehume, who's somewhere probably in the back. Yeah, always says like good things. Like, like now I'm botching what you say, Michael. I'm sorry. Um, good things always, to, or nothing good ever happens fast. That's what it is. Nothing good ever happens fast. And so we have to um, be mindful of the reality that what we're doing when we say yes to follow Jesus, to apprentice after Jesus, is we're starting the like long work of rebuilding again over the course of a lifetime. Building on a new sort of foundation, building a new sort of construction that is our lives, that habituates our, like, habituates ourself to God day after day after day. And just for the like reminder and for the record maybe even, it is, it is like we need to start from a place not of guilt but a place of grace. The invitation here to be present to God is not one filled with guilt. Like God knows and he sees and he's fine with where you are but he has more for you. And so the invitation is not like you should feel bad if you don't. The invitation is there's so much more life and flourishing for you to have as you find yourself in the presence and in the person of Jesus. And I know sometimes, at least in my own life, I feel like God carries this expectation that I should be much further along with him in my relationship than I actually am. And I think that that lie from the devil often may often keep me from God's presence because of the shame I sometimes feel for my own wrong expectation that I put on God of how he feels about me. Which brings me back to a reminder of how grateful I am that I'm not God and that he is that his character is unchanging and unmoving. His love is steadfast and long-suffering. His grace is for you at the moment of salvation when you said yes to follow him, and his grace is for you today. Both are true. But before we move on in the passage, there's a couple things I want to touch on real quickly as we look to become a church, a people, a community that carries a deep culture of trusting the Holy Spirit and a culture of prayer, and a culture that like we aren't afraid to pray for healing. Many people, modern Westerners, you and I, have a hard time with miracles or with healing stories. And I would just say briefly that the primary question about following Jesus, the primary question about miracles is not actually about miracles, but is about God. 
If you have no problem believing if, that God created the world by speaking it into being, or that God actively sustains the universe, or that God like quite literally knows the hairs on our head, puts breath in our lungs, and sees us in this moment, if you have no problem believing that God in the person of Christ took on flesh and died and rose again, like I believe in a Jesus who bodily rose from the dead. If I believe in that, miracles are like nothing. Miracles and healing are really secondary in my opinion, not the primary questions. And I think more importantly for us today, kind of the second piece, more importantly for us today is that in some church and faith communities, particularly of the charismatic Pentecostal and word of faith traditions. I consider myself a charismatic. If that bothers you, I'm sorry. Um, but there have been awful moments of abuse. There have been awful moments of abuse of these gifts. Like there's some mathematical equation to be repeated time and time again where the answer depends on one thing and it's whether you have enough faith or not. So I just want to name that reality of many people's church experience that like the fundamental reason why a person is healed or not healed is not whether your faith swings the like, what's the balance thing? Swings the pendulum, swings the weights, whatever it is. What like your faith is, is not the primary mover of healing. The Holy Spirit is the primary mover of healing. God is the primary mover of healing. So I just want to dispel that quickly, that equational process where the solution works or doesn't depending on your faith because healing, like I said, is not fundamentally a work of your faith but fundamentally a work of God. And the tension, because there is tension, many of you are going like, what about this scripture? And that's true. The tension here is that often throughout the scriptures, faith appears to be an active ingredient of healing. So I don't want to discount the like tension of these two realities that faith belongs as a part of the conversation, but faith is not the fundamental mover, the first mover or the catalyst that like that power, healing power belongs to God. So when healing happens, it's because God wants it to happen. When healing happens, it's because God is making things right. He's taking wrong things and he's making them right again. And this is why, like, this is why as a church, as River and Way, we take those two concepts that faith belongs, but it's not the primary mover. And as, as, like, as a general tendency, we want to figure out equations to make this make sense to us as logically as it possible can. And this, my friends, is where we're invited to like participate and believe in the mystery of God. That like God is deeper and wider and more knowledgeable and understands in a way that we never could. That our finiteness, that we are finite, cannot nearly come close to understand the infinite of who God is, always has been, and always will be. So we, like, we embrace the mystery of faith belonging but not being the like, primary thing that brings these things to reality. And I wish like you, that I had some answer to, as to why some people are healed and others are not. 
There is no silver theological bullet for why at this time in history, what we call the now and the not yet, where the kingdom of God has been inaugurated but has not come in full, there is no like definitive reason as to why some people are healed and some aren't. Recently, I was talking with a friend who leads a church in Portland, and there was a lady who was a part of their church who has been suffering from deafness for 38 years. And after a gathering, she went up for prayer, and they prayed for her, and they prayed that she would be healed. And instantly, she began to hear. And then I was talking to him more about the story, and he's like, and so we called the next day to see if it, like, stuck, because who knows? Like, we don't, like, this is the mystery of God. This is, and this is, like, God's presence to his people. And I wish I could understand why she was healed and you were not or I was not. But I don't understand. It's not for you and I to fully comprehend why God does things the way he does. All I know is that now we see dimly into a mirror and we must be honest about that as our reality. That we see dimly. We see, but we see dimly. And what we see gives us hope, but we see dimly. I wish I knew why that woman in Portland was healed and so many friends and family of mine have not been. I wish I had been healed. I still hope I will be healed. For many of you, you've heard me share this part of my story before where um, I have a seizure disorder and there was a time where it was possible that I could get off of my medication. And so uh, my wife, by her faith, not mine, was like, let's pray that you would be healed. And, and like, quite honestly, I was like, no, I don't, I don't believe God's going to heal me. I just don't. I'm, I'm like, it's cost me too much emotionally to believe before. And so I've let that reality, that possible hope, I've let it go. But through the prayers of my wife and my friends, I began to like allow God to stir in my heart that maybe I could be healed. And I remember as just tapering off my medication per my doctor's prescription, I see Mike in the audience. I don't want to, this is doctor's orders, Mike. So, um, so as I was tapering off my medication and I went from 100% to 75% and I was okay, why would you possibly let me get this far? Why would you let me believe again in healing if you weren't going to heal me? Like it, it broke my, I was so angry at God. So angry, and I wish I could understand. I wish I had the words. I wish I had the theological reasoning that could give us some like undergirding other than the reality that is the mystery of God of how he chooses to work in the world, and that is not my responsibility, thank the Lord, but it is his. And so we persevere together with our faith intact, trying to hold on to what we see even though we see dimly. And we hold to a hope that one day this not yet part of our story will be no more. That the kingdom of God will be restored in full. And that the lady in Portland will be able to hear, but I also won't have seizures. But until that day comes, we follow Christ with our hands open, asking the Holy Spirit to continue to renew things on earth that he would continue to reconcile all of creation to himself, to restore it back to the way it was supposed to be. 
And so that's one of the realities as we look at this passage is that this, this healing should beckon us to look toward the day when Jesus will heal all things again. This healing points us forward. It gives us vision to see that even if I'm not healed now, one day, someday with a capital S, as my friend Diane Comer says, someday I will be healed. And that doesn't mean we don't try or don't cry or don't pray, that we don't invite people to get up and walk, that we don't exercise our faith in the ability for God to do impossible things this side of that day. But we must be honest about the reality that we are not God. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that things like that happen. And so we, like our hearts can break and we can trust. They belong together. I don't want to believe anymore, but God, I trust you. And that's an emotional statement. And when you say it, God hears you and he sees it. And what's beautiful about God is even, even though he never promises us healing, he always promises us his presence that he is always near to you. He is near the brokenhearted is what the book of Psalms say. And so as our hearts break for the age to come, God promises that his presence would be near us. So Peter takes this man, takes his hand and he helps him up. The man's feet and ankles become strong. The man jumps to his feet and begins to walk. He joins Peter and John and goes into the temple. What a moment for like this man who sat outside the gate called Beautiful, that he gets to go into the temple after being separated from what has been like the Jewish picture of God's presence his whole life. He goes in walking and jumping and praising God. And everyone is amazed because they recognize him. They know who he is. This was the man who used to sit at the gate called Beautiful, and the people were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. As we trust the Holy Spirit and are shaped by God to be a community of the Spirit, we must recognize, we must recognize a few things. That first, the kingdom of God partners with those that are suffering. The Holy Spirit partners with those, invites his people to partner with those that are suffering. Almost every time a miracle is performed by Jesus or his apostles, it is when they encounter someone who is suffering. It is not like God writing in the sky for no reason. It is intentionality of the kingdom of God to lean into those who are suffering. And therefore, in turn, we must be people who run to the broken spaces of our own world and community and family origin story. You carry the Holy Spirit into a chaotic world. And if you don't faithfully show up to be the light and healing power of Christ, who on earth is going to be? The second is that the kingdom of God comes through vulnerability and through weakness. Every time there is a miracle performed, it puts whoever the person is who's empowered by the Spirit to manifest that miracle, it puts them in jeopardy. 
It always puts them outside of their comfort zone. It puts them in a place of dependence, not upon their own comforts, but of God. Jesus performs a miracle, and the religious elite immediately gather to decide that he should be crucified. In Acts 4 and 5, the Sanhedrin questions Peter and John and ultimately jails them for healing many. The kingdom of God partners with like jeopardy, vulnerability, and weakness. For some of you, even in stories I heard this week about how God is drawing you to himself or to Christ-centered community or an awakening of the spirit of God being active and present in this last year. The first time we were together in San Diego, we spent time praying and prophesying over each other. And for like for four months or for months after we had began this church, I was like personally, I was I was running hard and I was tired and I've well accepted the fact that like helping lead River and Way was way over my head, like way over my own abilities. And I was emotionally confused and worn down. And all of the things I remember standing in this room and being honest with God about these things. And I remember I remember asking God, would you send someone to pray over me? I don't even know if I have the words to move forward, but would you send someone to pray over me? Would someone listen to God on my behalf and then share what God says? And my friend Dave came over just a few minutes later to pray over me. That doesn't always happen. I've prayed often that God would send people. Rarely does he. There was an instance a couple weeks ago where God was telling me to go and I didn't go. And then later followed up with the person. They were like, oh, I totally needed prayer. And so I was asking that God would send someone. And so, so it was that story. But this time, my friend Dave came over to pray for me. And this is what he prayed. That he sensed from the spirit that my anointing in leading this church would come with egg on my face that my anointing was partnered with humility and even my perceived humiliation, which for the record is not what I wanted anyone to pray over me. <laughs> like that's, that's the last thing I wanted someone to pray over me. But here is what God made clear is that it was an invitation to jeopardy and to vulnerability and to weakness. The kingdom of God is not for those that can do it on their own, but for those who recognize they can't. The kingdom of God is for those who recognize they can't do it on their own. I want to close with this kind of last section. Peter goes on after this story, after this healing story, to give another sermon. Peter gives lots of sermons. All the people are amazed, and Peter says this. To them. This is a little bit of a long reading, so if you have your Bible in front of you, if you haven't opened it, open it to Acts 3. We're going to read Acts 3.11 through Acts 3.16. So five verses, I'll give you a second. This is what Peter says. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? If by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. And this is where I want to zero in as we wrap up our time. In verse 12, Peter utters this line that is encouragement at the same time, haunting. Why does this surprise you? Why does this surprise you? Do you not know the stories of old? Have you not read the prophets? Do you not know the story of God that one day things will come to change literally every other day of human history? Why does this surprise you? And I think what's beautiful about this moment is Peter is is calling out to those around him to share the story of like, if if you know these things, the, the scripture we just read, if you know these things about Jesus, if you know that like he was the author of life and you killed him, if you if you know the story of God, how could this surprise you? How could you be caught off guard that God one day who said he would renew all of creation is beginning to renew all of creation? And I think that that is an invitation for us to like vision and dream again about where God is restoring and renewing all of creation, you and me included that we would become well acquainted with what God is doing around us, that it would not surprise us when something outside of what we expect happens. May that even be the like ordinary for this church community, that we're so bound up in what God seems to be doing that when something comes from left field, it's not a surprise because it's actually the norm. Like the spirit leading and guiding a group of people is going to lead you outside your comfort zone into a place of weakness and vulnerability. And from there, the Holy Spirit has more space than we normally give him to move in power in people's lives. This story in Acts 3 reveals a lot. But if there is one thing for you to hold on today, it is this. It is the man who was lame in the beginning of the story is the man who is leaping by the end. And even if you were not leaping while on earth in our mortal bodies, one day you will leap again. One day you will be restored again. One day you will be made fully right as originally intended in the garden. Again, fully present to God. And until then, we will habituate, we will learn and practice how to bring ourselves to God's presence over and over and over again. That's, that's this story, the scriptures, the Bible, so often is about God just like trying to be with his people. And would we just respond that he will not wait, or the old biblical word if you're raised in church, he will not tarry forever.
One day he will wait no more and he will come again in power and in full. I want to close with the reading of Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. It says this, Then, talking about the joy of the redeemed and the day of fullness, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will flow in the desert. Let us pray. God, we come to you with a picture of this coming reality that is not our current experience. And it like, it beckons us to more and it breaks my heart. But wholeheartedly, God, we believe that as a community that you still move and act in power amongst your people, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make your will on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Christ, we just we read this passage, Isaiah 35, where where one day the lame leap like deer, like may that be a part of our story. Give us faith to believe in the power of what you do here on earth. Not what we do, not what we manipulate, not what we manufacture, but God, like, give us faith to believe the story and may your spirit empower us to live into a reality that we don't quite see. But we believe and we trust because of who you are, because you've never failed us. Even in the story where I am not healed, God, you did not fail me. Your presence never left. Your closeness never left. And so God, would you, um, would you draw our hearts to you again? Rather than to the things that we think would satisfy our soul, knowing that you are the only thing that can satisfy our soul, would you draw our hearts to you again, God? We trust you. Because you are worthy of our trust, you have proved yourself faithful. And we are glad to be a part of not our story, but your story, God. We love you, King Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you would stand and worship with us. And just as we do, just feel an invitation from the Spirit that um, we would consider the one thing that we keep holding on to that would finally satisfy us or finally give us comfort or finally make us happy, whatever that thing is, would you take some time in your own heart and soul to like name it? Naming things has power. I don't know if you know that, but we want to take some time, like the thing that we're reaching for that feels ever out of our grasp, that thing, if you could grasp it, will not satisfy your soul either. We know that. So would we take some time to name that thing and then come to Jesus and worship him because he is the only thing, relationship with Christ is the only thing that can satisfy the depths of our soul. So as we worship, would we respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in that place and then would we sing? Would we sing to King Jesus?